I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Patients, long passive participants in the drug research and development process, are playing a more active role, and the value of their input is being recognized by researchers, drug makers, and regulators. The 21st Century Cures Act, sweeping legislation now pending in Congress, would help solidify that role by providing opportunities for patient input into the regulatory process. We spoke to Kim McCleary, Managing Director of Faster Cures, about the legislation why it matters, and how it will change the role of patients. Kim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. We're going to talk about the changing role of patients today in our biomedical universe writ large and the role that the 21st Century Cures Act can play in helping redefine that role. But first, I thought we could begin with the 21st Century Cures Act itself sweeping legislation that's now pending. Without getting too deep in the details, can you give us a brief overview of what the legislation seeks to do? Sure, I'd be happy to. So this initiative really began a little bit more than a year ago with Representative Fred Upton and Representative Diana DeGette convening a series of roundtable discussions, both in uh, Washington, D.C., here in sort of the center of health policy, but also in many districts across the country, including their own uh, back in Michigan and Colorado, to look more broadly across the whole uh, research delivery ecosystem at ways in which they could help foster more innovation, greater efficiency, and a greater voice for patients in the types of medical products that are being uh, looked at in clinical research trials and also being delivered in terms of the healthcare system. So this was kind of a, a, a revolutionary thing. The way the government is constructed, uh, and the Congress in particular, their focus is often on very small parts of a system, and they have to look at things kind of one bill at a time that may seek to uh, fix kind of one little problem, but not really think about things from the whole system standpoint. So what was really unusual about the approach that Chairman Upton and Representative Deget took is this idea that they wanted to span the whole uh, cycle from the early discovery phase that's generally handled by agencies such as the National Institutes of Health to the development phase that's kind of a partnership between private industry, researchers in maybe academic settings, and agencies like the Food and Drug Administration uh, to the delivery of health care, including things like um, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare that provide health care for many Americans and also the hospital systems and physicians and, and just kind of the whole ball of wax. So that began about a year ago and culminated in a, a draft document that was released in January uh, that was about 400 pages of their best ideas on different pieces of the of the system that could be improved upon to lead to um, 
21st Century Cures, the name of the legislation. And over the months of uh, 2015, that legislation has been refined and refined and refined in uh, a series of hearings, both with external stakeholders uh, like rare disease patients and uh, medical societies and healthcare systems and uh biomedical industry players, as well as internally within the Congress, uh, a number of hearings, you know, both behind closed doors and among kind of unusual allies up on the Hill. So now what we have in front of us is the uh, the bill known as 21st Century Cures Act, and it's uh, H.R. 6, so House of Representatives Bill Number 6 in this uh, particular legislative uh, session uh, that has passed the first step of kind of uh, the bill becoming law with the House Energy and Commerce Committee passing that bill by uh, a very unusual vote of 51 to 0, meaning it had no opposition at the committee level, which in this kind of uh, very partisan climate is quite unusual in itself. And now that bill uh, is uh, expected to move on to the full uh, floor of the House of Representatives, perhaps as early as next week. And then the Senate will have to take up a companion effort uh, in order for that to move along uh, the legislative. 400 pages is a lot to cover, but can you offer some broad strokes on some of the types of things this bill will do? Sure. So, you know, when when Chairman Upton and uh, Representative Begett started this process, they were really very embracing of the idea that no idea is too big and no idea is too small for them to consider in terms of what could make a meaningful difference in the way that, uh, you know, ultimately health care is made available to Americans. So you'll see reflected in this draft of the bill that has now uh, cleared the first hurdle, which is now this version is, uh, I think, about 300 pages. So it, it, it got trimmed and then got, got larger and then got smaller again. Um, you'll see any range of things from providing uh, really substantial funding for the National Institutes of Health over the next three years and what generally happens in sort of a different part of Congress, but again, this was a unique effort by uh, this group of uh, the leaders of, of the 21st Century Cures Act to really bring kind of unusual parties together. So they got together with their colleagues who normally make funding decisions and put some resources into this bill um, so that NIH would have both the stability and some predictability about its funding source over the next three years. Um, there, so that's one of the bigger things that has kind of a bigger budget impact. And then there are smaller things like, you know, some things that aren't generally considered, you know, quote-unquote sexy, but that would actually make a big difference to the way that medical research is done. And one of those simple, not sexy things is that over the years, the ability for NIH researchers and FDA staff to travel to um, meetings of their colleagues, annual conferences, uh, you know, research forums, has been quite constricted, and they're often, uh, you know, sort of left behind when other people in their disciplines and other people uh, in the medical research, 
you know, world can convene and meet at meetings and exchange um, findings and, and look at new hypotheses, they're left out of that. So this bill takes kind of a small thing and makes it, again, possible for uh, FDA and NIH staff to travel more easily to, to uh, a certain type of meeting. Um, so that kind of gives you a, a sense of the range of things that are covered in these 300 pages. Well, the legislation also includes the OPEN Act, which we covered here on a previous podcast. But given our listeners' interest in rare diseases, could you give a quick overview of what the legislation will do in the realm of rare diseases? Sure. So I think may- many of your listeners will be familiar with the Orphan uh, Drug Act, which is now, gosh, uh, 35 years old, I think, at this point, but that really has transformed the incentives and the landscape for rare disease, uh, the development of rare disease therapies. And the OPEN Act, as part of um, the 21st Century Cures Act, goes a little bit further in terms of extending some new incentives to the biopharma industry to uh, you know, create some new ways that, that they can be rewarded for investing in the long development cycle and an often difficult development cycle when you have few patients um, that can both participate in clinical trials and that may benefit from the therapy uh, that's developed at the end of those uh, clinical studies. So that's just one way in which uh, the 21st century cures will help to stimulate investment and also a focus, continued focus, on uh, rare diseases. Well, at, at its heart, what problem is the 21st Century Cures Initiative trying to solve? Why, why is it needed? I think, you know, there has been, it's part of our organization, Faster Cures, um, mission statement that it takes too long and it costs too much to develop and deliver a new therapy. If you think about the time from the bench discovery to the deployment of that therapy that might be developed to medical practice, that process can go 15, 20 years and can cost, you know, anywhere from $1 to $3 billion, depending on whose estimates you're looking at. So I think this idea that Congress has a role in the systems that are involved all along the way and that if we could improve the efficiencies at any step of the process, we could yield significantly better outcomes for patients, perhaps some savings along the way, both to the nation as a whole and to the government in particular. And then, you know, also, I think, uh, coinciding with this interest in can we make it cheaper and faster, can we also bring patients into the center of it? And you started out with this, uh, you know, in, in the questioning, patient, this idea of patient centricity has really started to um, be talked about in all corridors, and Congress is not immune from that. And at the outset, uh, Representatives Upton and DeGette really wanted to find ways to include patients more directly in the discovery of new medicines and the development of, of promising therapies and how those are delivered and measured once they're out in, in the marketplace. The legislation, in part, seeks to build on efforts put in place by the FDA in 2012 to incorporate patient preferences and regulatory decision-making, an acknowledgement that risk tolerance varies among patients. What would the legislation do to formally incorporate patient experience data 
into regulatory decision making? So the, um, the you know the program that you uh, just mentioned that started with the uh, legislation passed in in 2012 it's called the focused uh, FIDESIA, right? FIDESIA as part of the every five-year process of renewing something called PDUFA, the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, created a new program at FDA where um, in the past, FDA has no way really to hear directly from patients about the impacts of their illness and about what uh, they perceive as the, the gaps in the treatment arsenal available for their particular condition that are outside the discussion of a single product. So patients can be part of um, the decision-making process currently at the very end of a long drug development program uh, when an advisory committee will sit down and hear the evidence and give FDA some guidance as to whether it thinks the standards for safety and effectiveness have been met. And often one patient will sit as a member of that advisory committee um, to, uh, you know, weigh in on on that set of questions. But it, more generally, as far as if that product were, say, uh, in um, a rare disease like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, they would have to wait to the very end of a, a long process to weigh in. This patient-focused drug development initiative now gives FDA kind of a forum to hear across the board about what patients are experiencing with their illness and what um, they, again, see as the holes in the treatment arsenal. So this has created a real uh, movement within biopharmaceutical companies to say, hey, you know, if the FDA is going to be talking to patients with uh, myelin repair uh, uh, disorders or with pulmonary hypertension. We better understand what the patients think as well. So the companies now are looking for ways to bring patients in and understand their ideas of unmet medical need and what the benefit expectations are and what risks they're willing to uh, trade off in exchange for those benefits. So the 21st Century Cures starts to kind of carry these themes through to a more permanent mechanism than something that could be or perhaps could not, might not be reviewed the next time the Prescription Drug User Fee Act gets reauthorized in 2017. It also helps to just sort of solidify the expectation that FDA will consider patient perspectives in its uh, assessment of the evidence and will start to use some of the authorities it already has um, to find ways to bring patients closer to the regulatory decision-making process rather than leaving it all for the end, uh, you know, at that one step where one patient may have a voice among others, but the whole range of perspectives of patients may or may not be considered. Today, that may not seem so remarkable, but it does represent quite a change in terms of the way researchers, physicians, and Drug makers have historically viewed the patient more as a, a passive part of the whole process of drug development. How big a departure is this, and, and what effect do you think it'll have on improving the way we do research and drug development? 
I think it's going to have a, you know, it's going to be a period of turbulence as all the partners in the ecosystem try to incorporate patients uh, more directly in their systems, whether that's a, a, a large pharmaceutical company that uh, starts to involve patients in what targets they go after and how to design clinical trials and how to understand uh, the results from those clinical trials in terms of whether uh, not only the clinical trial met its endpoint, but is it really helping patients in a way that matters to them? I think that's kind of the, the tougher question is, uh, you know, all of these companies have been set up really to drive towards science, but there's often kind of a disconnect with whether the targets they've chosen and the endpoints they're measuring and even the patient-reported things that they're looking at are really of central interest to patients. Um, so I think it's changing a lot of the good dialogue within the companies as to how do we do this and when do we do it and where do we start and what can we um, establish as some early wins to help kind of change the culture within our organizations to make this more uh, of, you know, kind of the expectation and and the rule rather than the exception and the outlier and, you know, the um, unusual case. And the same is true at FDA. is they've uh, The FIDASIA requirement that you mentioned, um, they have to do 20 of these disease-specific meetings, but there are 7,000 rare diseases and, and 10,000 diseases kind of known and described overall. So, you know, clearly the 20 meetings over five years is not even a, a drop in the bucket. It's, you know, a drop in the ocean as to what needs to happen. And there have to be ways to update that information that they're collecting and to do it on a much bigger scale than they're currently ready to do. So I think all of us together have to figure out what makes sense and what are the different roles? What's the role that patient organizations have? Can they be out collecting this information and kind of serving it up to FDA and making it available to industry? Uh, you know, what role does industry play and how does that change the relationships between patients and industry and regulators? The bill also seeks to make it easier for patients to get access to experimental drugs on a compassionate use basis. How would it reform the existing compassionate use or expanded use system, and, and why does that matter? What does that mean for patients? Well, I think this has been a, a really tough, uh, tough thing to to navigate. Um, the expanded use or compassionate use guidelines that are in place right now kind of leave it up to the developer as to when that medication can be made available outside of clinical trials with some approval mechanisms for the FDA that are uh, generally, to my understanding, you know, uh, approved in nearly all of the cases in which a request is made by the company to provide to a patient outside uh, of the clinical trial while a medication is still under experimental development. So I think this looks for maybe some more uh, uh, guardrails to be put up around how how that happens. I know there's also some um, sort of voluntary efforts that have been guided by pharma, the uh, pharmaceutical 
and Research Manufacturers Association as well as Bio for there to be more transparency that a company, you know, sort of makes its procedures and policies more available to the public and prescribes uh, perhaps a, a single point of contact or a, a mechanism that patients and physicians can go through that uh, is a little bit easier to follow um, in the case where something might be potentially helpful to a patient that doesn't uh, have access to or fit the criteria for a clinical trial. So I think 21st Century Cures has tried to advance that conversation, and I know there's a lot of interest and, um, you know, energy around how do we find some ways to, to do this that don't compromise the clinical trial system, uh, don't perhaps pit one patient against another when there are limited supplies of these medicines, and that respects kind of the roles of uh, the regulator, FDA, in that dialogue. As, as you mentioned, the bills had a long path. It, it was a 400 pages cut down to 300. Every Everything was welcome and open at first. I'm curious, anything that didn't survive the original legislation that's a concern or anything you're happy to see gone? Um, I, you know, it's been a, a, an evolving process and interesting to see, you know, at the beginning of the process how there was you know, I think a, a real motherhood and apple pie spirit to this. And I think, uh, you know, everybody on, on the committee and the subcommittee that participated in early roundtables had a real sense that, oh, there must be, you know, one simple thing that we could do to really uh, make things more efficient or make them work better for the public. And I think what they found over the course of all of the roundtable meetings and the meetings back in their districts and, and all of the listening sessions held here, that, gosh, this is a complex system. And there are so many pieces and parts to it that um, it, it's not a simple top-down fix like we might have hoped. We can't just, you know, tinker with something at the NIH or change something about the FDA or Centers for Medicaid and Medicare. And that, you know, kind of a recognition that government is a fairly blunt instrument. And some of this is going to take surgical expertise. And we have to be careful um, not to do kind of harm in a way where we've created this law and then suddenly it, it creates more than it, problems than it solves. So I think there's been this recalibration as the bill has gone through the various stages of a discussion draft and a first draft and second draft and one that ultimately um, did gain the, the unanimous support of the Energy and Commerce Committee to really fine tune, you know, what is government's role in some of these decisions and what is better left to the marketplace and what what can we facilitate um, among all the stakeholders in the ecosystem. So in terms of, uh, you know, what got added in, I think this sense that you can't, you can't put a lot of new responsibilities on these federal agencies that already have a very broad and um, 
important mission and expect them to do more without new resources. And the addition and the ability of uh, particularly Chairman Upton and Representative DeGette to, to reach across their, to their colleagues on the funding side of the House of Representatives to bring resources into the bill so that these didn't become a set of unfunded mandates, if you will, um, when the process, you know, over the whole session plays out, that uh, that was really a strong call and something that that people felt was definitely missing from the first set is these are all great ideas, but if there's not money to do them, then they're not simply not going to be done or other things will um, be cut as a result. And that could have, you know, a very detrimental overall outcome. Uh, so I think the, the resources piece became sort of a central theme. Um, the other is that, you know, each of these things has a trade-off on its own. We talked a, bit, a little bit about benefit risk at the beginning. And, you know, while there are a lot of things that could be proposed, um, it, it's always a series of, well, do you put people's time and energy over here and potentially leave these other things that are essential undone? So we've seen, you know, some of the proposals scale back to be maybe a little uh, less ambitious than what some had a, a initially hoped in sort of more of a pragmatic approach to, well, you know, can we can we move this ball maybe to the 30-yard line but not expect we're going to get all the way into, um, you know, we're not going to take it all the way into scoring. Uh, that's going to be more of a stepwise process that will happen over time as uh, agencies adapt and, and take on some of these new responsibilities. As you mentioned earlier, the bill advanced out of committee with a unanimous vote. What's the path forward and, and what's the timetable and are there threats to it winning full approval? So the current timetable uh, is that I think they're hoping to put it on the floor after the House uh, recesses for the 4th of July holiday. So we could see it as early as uh, next week being scheduled for a vote. I think the bill is up to 280 sponsors at this point, which means uh, getting majority of the 435 votes it would need to pass feels uh, pretty secure at this point. But um, Chairman Upton, in his very passionate and committed style, is hoping you know, to really send a strong signal to his colleagues on the Senate side with uh, – you know, almost a quote-unquote landslide-type vote that would signal, you know, just the, the House's strong support of this bill to urge the Senate to act more quickly. Um, when it leaves the House, the the Senate will have to, um, you know, consider um, a similar-type bill, and that have, process has already started uh the, the companion effort on the Senate side will originate with a committee called the HELP Committee, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee on the Senate side, which is led by Chairman uh, Lamar Alexander and uh, Senator Patty, Patty Murray on the minority side. And they have convened uh, just a few hearings in this session of Congress looking at ways to stimulate innovation. And I think based on what uh, Chairman Alexander has said in public settings, that they won't be as ambitious as their House colleagues. They really 
don't have uh, kind of the bandwidth to look at the whole discovery, development, delivery cycle in the same way that the house did. So they may focus in on some areas, uh, probably some things that are more related to FDA and fewer things related to NIH that they can do to stimulate innovation. And then once that bill uh, kind of goes through a similar process on the Senate side, moving from the committee to the floor of the Senate, then there will be a conference, um, which is the meeting of the House leaders and the Senate leaders on these two initiatives to see what areas they have in common and to come out with a conference uh, conference report or bill that would then uh, go back to both the House and the Senate and uh, hopefully be voted into uh, law and then uh, to the president for his signature. So it does still have quite a few steps to go. And I, I always remember back to um, that Schoolhouse Rock uh, video about how a bill becomes a law, and we'll have to step through those uh, processes in order to see this um, made the law of the land and then implemented. Do you want to do a few bars? <laughs> you would not want my singing voice, so I'll, I'll spare your listeners that. <laughs> well, your, your organization's name states its focus very clearly, Faster Cures. Is this going to get us to new cures faster? And, and if so, what do you think will be the biggest improvements the legislation makes in the way we do things? I think, uh, you know, one of the benefits of this legislation is that it has really opened an important dialogue among all of the stakeholders. So the patient organizations have been remarkably active in this whole process. Congress has been very receptive to their comments and, and bringing forward new ideas and helping shape and craft uh pieces of the law from the patient uh, perspective data input that you mentioned earlier, the OPEN Act. Um, it's brought, you know, industry forward in terms of bringing some of those ideas uh, from their member companies. The academic institutions have seen a role and been very vocal in the conversation as well. So it, it's opened up a dialogue that I think Maybe you know one of the lasting pieces, the, the the lasting legacies of this whole process, is really having people look at well, what are the big ideas and what are the little fixes we can make. So that will that will transform kind of the ecosystem, regardless of what the mechanics of the bill are making its way um, into passage. And then in terms of you know what do we see as as some of the you know, the potential outcomes is it does strip away, you know, some of the layers of bureaucracy that have added to the time and the expense on on the part of government agencies, on the part of universities and individual uh, investigators. So, you know, those are, are going to be harder to measure because I think they're smaller and they occur at all different time points along this long continuum, but that we may start to see some freeing up of resources, both monetary and intellectual, that help to just foster more, uh, you know, innovation within the system and also more free passage, if you will, of things like clinical data and uh, patient information and a stronger understanding of, you know, kind of what the patient's role in all of this is. Those things will outlive even, you know, the paper that, that will exist at the end of it. 
Kim McCleary, Managing Director of Faster Cures. Kim, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.